Good morning, friends. Today is Trinity Sunday, and my message is titled, Three Times Holy, and it comes from a variety of different texts. Two of them I'm going to refer to pretty early from Isaiah chapter 6, verse 3, and the other one, way down at the other end, Revelation chapter 4, verse 8. But let me start off by asking you this question. Are you a holy person? Well, I would imagine that there are very few of us who would uh, use the word holy to describe ourselves. We probably feel more comfortable using words like, well, I'm not holy, but I'm, I'm trustworthy, or I'm generally joyful, or uh, I can be friendly. The truth is the word holy has negative connotations even to many Christ followers. We're just not sure what it means, so we rarely use it to describe other people, other than maybe derogatory, calling somebody a holy roller or holier than thou. See, it's often used in an insulting way, so we feel vaguely uncomfortable applying it to ourselves. Yet God said, be holy as I am holy. Now, before we can understand what it means to be holy, we need to understand what it means to say that God is holy. Now, in many ways, holiness is God's central attitude, attribute. I mean, one writer actually defines it this way. Holiness is that which makes God, God. Now, how important is that? Well, holiness is the only attribute of God mentioned in triplicate. Two times in the Bible, it tells us that God is holy, holy, holy. That's Isaiah 6.3 and Revelation 4.8. Now, think about that for a moment. If God says something about his character once, that seems like enough to settle it. But when he says it three times, that means it is of supreme importance. Now, the Bible never says that God is love, 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 or mercy, 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 or justice, justice, justice. But it does say that he is holy, holy, holy. Well, let's begin by uh, working toward a definition. Now, I agree with uh, a lot of different commentators and Bible writers who say that holiness is perhaps the most difficult attribute to define because it deals with the very essence of God's character. Defining holiness is like, well, it's like defining God. It cannot be done completely. We can describe holiness and find ample illustrations of it, but we really can't define it entirely. And that's what makes God, God. Well, the word itself means to be set apart. A thing is holy if it is set apart for a special use. Now, other words you might use are words like distinctive or different. But applied to God, holiness is that characteristic that sets him apart from his entire creation. Now, there are many verses that speak of God being on high or reigning or in his holy temple or sitting on his throne These picture God as separate from creation and reigning over it. Now, we can go further and say that anything is holy is set apart for God. Now, for example, that's what we call the Bible, the Holy Bible, because it contains the Word of God. Or we call Israel the Holy Land because it's the land he chose for his people. The angels are called holy angels because they belong to God. The Sabbath is holy because he set it apart. And when Moses stood before the burning bush, he was told to take off his shoes because he was standing on what? Holy ground. Ground that God had set apart for himself. Now, there's a second meaning of holy. It means utterly pure, separated from sin. 
The Bible tells us that God hates sin, that he cannot sin, nor will he tempt others to sin. God is so pure that he cannot tolerate sin in any form. And one day he will destroy sin forever. Now that leads us to an important implication. It's this. Holiness and sin cannot coexist. If you want to be holy as God is holy, you must adopt his attitude. You must hate sin as he does. If you coddle sin or excuse sin or dabble in sin, you cannot be holy as he is holy. Now, in the remainder of this message, I want us to consider what God's holiness means for you and me. And we're going to take a look at three different episodes episodes where mortal men encountered a holy God. And from these three stories, we're going to glean some, I think, some crucial spiritual truths for ourselves. Our first episode comes from Isaiah 6, and it regards the life of the prophet Isaiah. It takes place early in his ministry, where in Isaiah 6, 1, it says, In the year King Uzziah died. Now, that note's kind of important because Uzziah was one of the best kings Judah ever had. He had a heart for God, unlike many of his predecessors and successors. Now, when he died, the nation was plunged into turmoil. A golden age in Israel's history was drawing to a close. So the question was, would the people continue to walk with God, or would they return to idolatry? And in that fateful moment, Isaiah came face to face with the living God. Now, we can summarize his experience with four words found in Isaiah 6. The first word is majesty. Verses 1 and 2. I saw the Lord seated on the throne, high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphs, each with six wings. With two they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. The second word is worship. That's in verses 3 and 4. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook and the temple was filled with smoke. So we've got majesty and worship. The third word is confession. Verse 5. Woe to me, I cried. I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphs flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. So majesty, worship, confession... And then comes cleansing in verses 6 and 7. And with it, that coal, he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Now, of all the things we might say about this this magnificent Bible passage, let's concentrate on one central truth. When Isaiah saw the Lord, he also saw himself. That's why he cried out, Woe is me! And until then, Isaiah didn't look so bad. I mean, he was probably more moral than many of his contemporaries. Compared to them, he looked clean. Compared to God, well, he looked filthy. So when we see God for who he is, we will then see ourselves for who we really are. Holiness leads to confession and repentance. And if you've not cried out, I'm a person of unclean lips lately, it may simply indicate that you've not seen the king lately. See, what happened to Isaiah happens to anyone who catches a glimpse of God. And the closer you come to God, the more you will recognize your own sinfulness. It's kind of like taking a white shirt that you've worn for a year and placing it next to a a brand new one. I mean, suddenly it doesn't look all that white anymore. It has kind of a dingy look to it. Now, all of that seems so pure to me is dirty when seen in the blinding light of God's character. 
I remember memorizing a lot of hymns growing up at St. John's Lutheran School in Seward, Nebraska. One of them I remember is the one that says, Holy, 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 though the darkness hide thee, though the eye of sinful man thy glory may not see, only thou art holy, there is none beside me, beside thee, perfect in power, in love and purity. Now, someone has said that the first principle of usefulness is to understand that you are not worthy to be used. This is what happened to Isaiah. He saw himself when he saw the Lord, and that seeing led to confession, repentance, and cleansing. Now, to understand the second episode, we need to go back almost 700 years earlier to the Sinai Desert. There's a man named Moses about to meet God for the very first time. While he's out tending sheep, a most extraordinary event takes place. A bush begins to burn, but it's not consumed. I mean, fascinated by it, Moses walks a little closer to investigate. This is when, in Exodus 3, verses 4 and 5, he hears the voice of God say this. So when the Lord saw that he had gone over to look at it, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, Here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals, for the place you are standing is, here it comes, holy ground. Now, let me paraphrase what God was saying. He says, Moses, do you remember how I revealed myself to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? I mean, you've heard those stories in all of your life. I'm the same God who talked with them hundreds of years ago. And just as I used them to accomplish great things, I got a great big job in mind for you. Are you ready to listen to what I have to say? Now, I'm not sure how I would have responded at that time. I would have been shaken in my sandals, I'm sure. But I think I would do exactly what Moses did. Verse 6 says, he hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. And then God told Moses to take off his shoes to remind him that he was standing on holy ground. See, this is the reminder of the infinite distance between God and man. He can only come so close and no closer. The more we see of God, the more cause we shall see to worship him with reverence and godly fear. I mean, even the manifestations of God's grace and covenant love should increase our humble reverence of him. So this, then, is our second response to God's holiness. It's deep respect for who God is. And yet, in Jesus, we have been invited to come boldly into God's presence. Now, this is what Hebrews 11.4 is all about. We are no longer kept at arm's length, but are now welcomed into the very throne room of the universe. However, Romans 12.29 warns us not to take God lightly, but to worship him with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Now, some Christ followers have mistaken access with informality and substituted, I guess I'd call it flippancy or, or familiarity. Yes, we're to call God Father, but that, rem- that means treating him with the respect he deserves. Now, the third episode comes from one of the strangest passages in all the Bible. For the longest time I read that, and I thought, this is really weird. I don't understand this at all. This is in 2 Samuel chapter 6. So we need to run the clock ahead about 450 years. David has been crowned king of Israel. He just conquered Jerusalem. And all that remains for him to do is to have the Ark of the Covenant transported from the house of Abinadab, to the temple or the tabernacle in Jerusalem. Now, the ark had been absent from the tabernacle for nearly 20 years. The Philistines captured it, but later gave it back to the Israelites. That's a whole story in itself. 
Now, David wanted it back in the capital because it represented the presence of God with his people. Now, once a year on the Day of Atonement, the high priest would enter the Holy of Holies and sprinkle blood on the mercy seat, indicating that the sins of the people had been atoned for through sacrificial blood. So David ordered the ark to be taken back to Jerusalem and assembled thousands of people who joined in the celebration. Now, he took the ark and put, put it on a cart pulled by a team of oxen. And the two sons of Abinadad uh, walked next to the ark to steady it, lest it fall to the ground. So let's pick up the story here in verses 6 and 7. When they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah reached out and took hold of the ark of God because the oxen stumbled. The Lord's anger burned against Uzzah because of his irreverent act. Therefore, God struck him down and he died there beside the ark. You ever read that story before? That's pretty weird. Now, we need to understand several facts here in order to, for this story to make sense. Uh, number one, although David meant well, he did not obey the Lord's command. Yes, God wanted the ark back in Jerusalem, but he had given specific instructions that it should be transported by priests who would carry it by means of long poles inserted through rings attached to the ark for that very purpose. In other words, no one was supposed to touch it. If David had followed God's plan, the ark would have been safe, but because he substituted his own plan, Uzzah died. The second thing to understand here is Uzzah probably also meant well. And After all, if you were walking beside the ark and it began to tip over, what would you do? You'd probably put out your hand and straighten it or hold it back, wouldn't you? And that would be the last thing you'd ever do. You see, Uzzah knew that no human was ever to touch the ark of the covenant because it was holy. Uzzah mistakenly thought that his sinful hand was somehow less sinful than the dirt of the earth. He was wrong. I mean, God never said the dirt was sinful. It was just dirt, nothing more. Uzzah not only disobeyed God, he also disrespected the Lord's command. Now, David's reaction was understandable. First of all, he was really angry in verse 8. And second, he suddenly got afraid. Verse 9, if God's going to start killing people for stuff like that, we're all going to be dead soon. Now, this story teaches the good mot- that good motives are not enough. Enthusiasm must be accompanied by obedience. It's not enough to mean well. We must do the right thing. And that's the third response to God's holiness. Fear lest we should displease the Lord. Now, let, let's wrap up with two practical applications. What will it mean if we begin to take God's holiness seriously? Well, I think here's the first application we can make. When we actually grasp God's holiness, we will be moved to wholehearted worship. That is what happened to Isaiah when he saw a vision of God. That's what happened to Job when the Lord finished his interrogation of him. That's what happened to the 24 elders in heaven as they come before the throne. Holiness leads to worship. Now, that leads me to share some good news and some bad news. The good news is, You can worship God anywhere. Now, in our three examples today, men worshiped in the temple, in the desert, and on the road to Jerusalem. So, I would agree with everyone who says you don't have to go to church to worship God. And that's true, and lots of people who go to church do not worship anyway. They come by force of habit or to see friends. I mean, worship is sometimes the last thing on their minds. But, you know, you can worship anytime, anywhere, as long as you catch a glimpse of God's holiness. When you see God, you will worship no matter where you are. Now, the bad news is 
as bad as the good news is good. Although you can worship God anywhere, you cannot worship him half-heartedly. There's no such thing as half-hearted worship. Now, of course, there's religious routine and repetitive ritual, but true worship grips the mind and the heart and the soul. Here's our second application. When God's holiness grips us, we will respond with wholehearted obedience. Now, this follows naturally, at least it should. Now, let me suggest what wholehearted obedience would look like. There will be a new respect for God. There'll be a new respect for God's name. We won't use his name so flippantly. There will be kind of a new zeal to please him, a new attention to the details of life. There'll be a new fear of God's judgment and a new love for God's people. That's all of God's people. A new desire for his word and a, a new hatred for sin and a new humility, a new fear of God in the congregation and a new emphasis on the cross of Jesus. A new desire to serve the Lord, new joy in worship, new zeal in prayer, a new desire to tell others about the Lord. There'll be a new reverence for life itself. But what else will happen when we once again elevate God's holiness to its proper position? There'll be less talk about self-esteem and more talk about repentance. There'll be less concern about the White House and more concern for God's house. There will be fewer flippant jokes and more serious worship. There'll be less emphasis on relevance and more emphasis on faithfulness. There'll be less therapy from the pulpit, more preaching of the cross. There'll be less neglect of church discipline. They'll be less concerned about what the world thinks and more concerned about what God thinks. You know, here are seven benefits of holiness to the believer. God's holiness exposes our sin. It shatters our pride. It awakens our conscience. It redirects our will. It stirs our emotions. It prompts our obedience. It ignites our worship. Friends, because God's holiness is his central attribute, his holiness is the central issue of the Christian life. That's why in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 16, it says, Be holy, because I am holy. When God's holiness becomes a reality to us, we will never be the same again. Now, I began the sermon by remarking that God's holiness is that which makes God God. In a sense, our holiness is what what makes us truly Christ followers. To speak of an unholy Christian is ultimately an oxymoron. Holiness is the mark of God's children. We are to be holy because we have been made partakers of his divine nature. To be holy means that in every area of your life, you are so aware of God's presence that you are distinctively Christian. One last bit of good news. It is not impossible to be holy, even in this unholy world. See, friends, Jesus did the hard part when he died on the cross. The Holy Spirit lives in you if you're a Christ follower. God calls you holy in Christ Jesus. Do you want to be holy? Then live up to what you already are. Holiness is natural for the child of God. So let me end by asking again, would you consider it a compliment if someone called you a holy person? I would hope so, because that's the highest compliment God could ever give you. Holy Father, open our eyes today that we might truly see you, and having seen you, to see ourselves as you see us. We pray to be holy as you are holy and to live up to what we already are in Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. 
Until next time, see the vision, live the mission, and feel the passion. God bless.